Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas have just helped free a slave girl from demon possession. But instead of being grateful, her masters are angry and drag them to jail. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 16, verse 19. Once again, that's Acts chapter 16, verse 19. Well, he came out that same hour, this wonderful, precious girl that God had made was now free. But not everybody was happy, verse 19. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and they drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. And they brought them before the magistrates saying, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. All they cared about was the money. It was almost like Paul had come into their shop and broken a tool of the trade. And now they're demanding reparation. I don't have a lot of patience for men who look at women or children as things. Very little. God designed us to protect the weak and the innocent, not to oppress them. And if you are abusing your wife, if you are abusing your children, you need to repent. You need to repent. They are not yours to do with as you please. They are not a thing that you own. They're precious creations of God that he loved and that he died for. In our lives, very often we will make partnerships with things that are vile because of the benefits that they bring to us. I want to encourage you today, if you've partnered with some things that you've justified as okay because of what it brings into your life or the benefits that you have at your business, it's time to stop, to walk with the Lord, to provide all things honest in this sight. God will take care of you. He will watch over you. He will bless you. He will help you. Well, these men, they dragged them. That's what the word drew their men's. That means they dragged them. They physically, the idea of dragging implies resistance that, you know, Paul and Silas were putting up a bit of a fight here, but so they had to probably been beaten up pretty bad to be drugged into the marketplace. And so the marketplace in that time period would be the town's social gathering center. Uh, magistrates and judges would set up court as well as all the businesses that would have their, their shops and their wares for sale there. And these businessmen bring them right into the middle of the marketplace to the magistrates, to these leaders. And it says that they said, these men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Now the magistrates here, the word here is actually the stratagems, usually refer to the leaders of an army. But remember, Philippi is a military colony. So it would have had a military governor, which is maybe why they felt more pride in their military title than the one that would normally be used by a governor, which would be like a praetor or something like that, like Pontius Pilate used. And the accusation is simple. It's two things. Number one, they're trying to start a riot. That's what it means they've tried to trouble our city. In verse 20, it mentions they do exceedingly trouble our city. They are trying to start a riot. Now, people often refer to the Pax Romana as this wonderful, prosperous, peaceful time period in civilization. God, however, has a very different view of the Roman Empire. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, you can write it down if you're taking notes. I'm just going to read it real quickly. But in Daniel 2, 40, God says this, 
And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and crush. That was God's view of the Pax Romana. That was his view of the Roman Empire. If there's anything Rome hated, it was rebellion. And to be accused of starting a riot was one of the most heinous of offenses you could be accused of and carried the most stiff of penalties. But the second accusation is that they're forcing us to obey laws we don't have to, verse 21. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us or we're not required to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Now remember, most of the people living in Philippi would be military folk and their families. And despite being a world away, they consider themselves Italians, okay? They consider themselves to be Romans. We are free. Nobody tells us what to do except our country. So you're not gonna bring these different ideas into our city. So the charge levied against Paul and Silas is that they're forcing free Romans to do something they're not obligated to do. And in particular with the Emperor Claudius, as we'll see in chapter 18 of Acts, having just expulsed all the Jews from all Roman cities, it would be a negative thing for them to be called Jews, okay? Now, I think it's fascinating that they're charged with saying they're trying to tell us to do stuff that we don't have to do, because isn't that the charge placed against Christians today in our country? We preach Jesus as the only way, or we stand up for what is moral and right by proclaiming what is immoral and wrong, and we're told we're trying to force our views upon others, don't we? You hate gay people because you don't, you're not for gay marriage. You hate this group of people because you're this. But really, how far logically can you take that? What if someone is attempting murder? Is it wrong for me to tell them to stop? Well, our legal system has laws about that. Yeah, but what if they're not righteous laws? As far as I'm concerned, in our country, it's legal to murder certain kinds of people. People that can't defend themselves. Would it be wrong for me to intervene if I see someone doing that? What if someone someday tries to legalize marriage between a man and a child? Am I supposed to keep silent because my moral outlook on that topic is based only on my faith? You say, well, now you're getting stupid. Don't even say something like that. That will never happen. And you hear people say that. You, you Christians are always worried about the slippery slope. Really? It already is. ISIS is doing it. They take little girls that they have captured from other countries and they force them to marry their men. 11-year-old girls have to marry these perverts. And they justify it based on their moral point of view. All law is based on some kind of morality, just sometimes just based on the wrong kind of morality. Everyone has a source of their morality somewhere, even if that source is themselves, which I would believe to be the most idiotic form of morality. <laughs> because if you would say that, then you're saying, I am the one who knows everything. I know all the things that are right and good, and you don't. So therefore, I'm the one that determines what is good and right. Doesn't it seem to make a little bit more sense to appeal to someone who is a higher power who would understand what morality is, who would have all knowledge? That seems to make more sense to me, but I'm closed-minded and ignorant. In many other cultures, sexual abuse of children is perfectly legal, not a problem whatsoever. Understand this, whenever we talk about sin, sinners are going to feel uncomfortable, okay? They're going to, that's just how it is. Now, if they respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, who's making them uncomfortable, then they'll often respond favorably to you. Even if they don't agree with you, they'll be like, okay, I see where you're coming from. 
And there are plenty of unbelievers out there who fall into that category. I have plenty of unbelievers I can have a conversation with and we do not share views at all. They're an atheist and I'm not, but we talk about things and they understand where I'm coming from. They're not belligerent or whatever. But if they don't respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, if they're not open, then they're gonna get angry. Because if you're right, then they have to admit their behavior shouldn't continue. And since they can't see the Holy Spirit who's trying to bring them to repentance, who are they gonna lash out at? You, you're the one they see. So how do we respond to that kind of hatred? Well, look at Matthew chapter five. If you just turn there with me real quick, Matthew chapter five. Jesus told us how to respond to those who are against us. Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 48. And I'm gonna also read 1 Peter chapter two to you as well. Verses 21 and 23, after that real quick. But Matthew chapter five says, you have heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. You say, that doesn't sound fair. No, it's not. But the ultimate injustice is my Lord on a cross. It's never been about what's fair. It's been about what's right. And this is what's right because this is how Jesus lived. Do this, so why? Verse 45, that you may be the children of your father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise in the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why does God allow trouble? Why does God allow suffering? Because if he judged the world, he would have to judge the world. He'd have to judge everything. Listen, the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. You say, well, then God's not righteous. Oh, no, no, no. God will right every wrong. God will judge. See, this is the problem. See, those who deem themselves to be good say, why does evil happen in the world? Because they don't deem themselves to be evil. And why doesn't God do anything to stop it? Well, there's a reason because it means he has to stop you as well. So his rain falls in the just and the unjust. Rain is a good thing in the Middle East, by the way, not a negative thing. That was a blessing. Four, verse 46, if you love them which love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the publicans the same. In other words, how, how does that make us any different than anybody else? Everybody loves their own. And if you salute your brethren only, then what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans do so? Be therefore perfect, even as your father which is in heaven is perfect. You want to be like Jesus, then you got to be good to those who are not good to you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, for even hereunto are you called. Say, am I called to something? You're called to this, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. That's what we do when we are going through this. We do not revile back. We do not threaten, but we commit ourselves to the one who judges righteously, the one who will right every wrong. When I see little children who refuse to recant their faith in Christ and would rather be beheaded, they respond to hatred by committing themselves to a faithful creator 
who welcomes all of them into his arms and they receive a crown. How do you know? How do you know that maybe one of those members who is there watching will not someday come to Christ because of what they saw? How do you know? How do you know? Living in that situation where it seems like you're just made fun of every day at work and you think, Lord, I'm the only Christian here. Why? Why? And he's like, because you're the only Christian there. That's why. Somebody has to be the testimony. Well, back in Acts chapter 16, they make these accusations. And it says here, as the accusations come, verse 22, the multitude rose up against them. As these charges are brought forth, these proud Romans, the marketplace there, they're hearing the charges and the whole marketplace erupts into the very riot that they've accused Paul and Silas of instigating. Truly the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Concealed as patriotism. We're Romans. We don't do this. We don't have to do anything. Concealed as patriotism. The real issue is greed. The real issue is greed. We would do well to listen to the truth behind so much of the political talk that goes on today. I'm very careful what I listen to on the radio because I think you guys are profiting a whole lot off my ears. Whichever side you come from, you're profiting a whole lot off my ears. I'm very careful. It's their job to make money. That's what they're doing this for. Many of them, they make money. It's their livelihood. They're gonna spend things the way that they want. And like I said, which side, whatever side it comes from, I'd rather open my ears to this stuff. Have God fill me with his truth. Well, they rose up, they joined. That phrase there means to join in the attack. And so the magistrates, these judges, instead of conducting a trial, it's a mob trial, it says they commanded, they tore off their clothes, not theirs, but Paul and Silas's garments. They had their clothes torn off and they commanded that they would be beaten. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. So they had their clothes torn off in anticipation of commanding the lictors there to beat them. These were their, the, the heavies. They would come in, they would beat them. Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians that he experienced this beating two other times. Three times he said he was beaten with rods. I know the word stripes here is used, but the idea is they were beaten with these rods so badly that it lacerated their skin. It's interesting, the Jews would give 40 lashes minus one. The idea is to be merciful. But the Romans had no such, the way it was done when the magistrate put his thumb up. When he'd go like that, he'd say, okay, that's enough. So it was at their whim. Whatever they said, that's enough, that's enough. They could just beat you. A lot of times they just beat you till you were dead. Paul and Barnabas experienced this beating and they threw them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, securely who, verse 24, having received such a charge, he made their feet fast in the stocks. So interestingly, he put them into the, who having received such a charge, he thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Roman prisons, they would have a lobby, which often would also have the house of the jailer attached. So his family, him and his family would live attached to that lobby. And then there would be an outer prison, which would be attached to the lobby as well. And then there would be an inner prison. And that inner prison would either be the dungeon that would be below the outer prison or just be deeper in. But the inner prison would have no light. It would have no airways into it. They would usually not be clean. So there'd be human excrement there. The only light or air that would come in would be what would 
come in when the door would be opened and they would go in to do something. And so they're thrust into that deepest prison. These are the most dangerous of criminals, of course. Thrust into this deepest prison, this inner prison. And then it says it's jailer. He made their feet fast in the stocks. Now the Romans employed two types of stocks. One of them had five holes. It'd have two for your wrists, two for each ankle and one for the neck. And you would be held there in that position with your bottom kind of hanging on the ground and in that awkward position where all your joints are stretched out. The second one just had two holes for the ankles, but it would be like this massive iron comb. And and they would spread your legs as far wide as they could. And then they would lock your legs into this, this comb. And then you would be placed up against the wall. So the only way for you to find it rest would be to kind of fall down into the waist that was usually there. Whichever one of those two is used here, the jailer is inflicting the maximum conditions any prisoner could have in his jail upon Paul and Silas. And how do Paul and Silas respond? This blows me away. Verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and they sang praises unto God. There in the pitch blackness and foul dankness, in the midst of their pain, Paul and Silas worshiped the Lord. You know, it would have been very easy to have a, as we in our family say, a yucky attitude right now. (laughs) It'd be very easy to have a yucky attitude right now. They'd been falsely accused. They'd had their rights as Roman citizens violated because as we're gonna find in a moment, Paul is a Roman citizen, as is Silas. They were abused physically by the magistrates and the jailer tortures them. Pick any reason, none of them seem fair. And yet they worship. How many times do we find ourselves in the midst of a painful situation and we go, Lord, what are you doing? What are you, what is going on? Why am I here? You know, troubles, trials, unfairness, you name it. It's what we signed up for, but cheer up. Jesus said in this world, you have a tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus has already won. He's already won. And that's how you and I can worship in the darkest moments and in the midst of pain, because he's already won. This moment, this affliction that you're experiencing, this light difficulty, as Paul calls it, it can't compare to the eternal weight of glory that shall be revealed in us. When you are in heaven, you will not even bat an eye when you think about the difficulties you might be going through right now. Now, I don't know what songs they sang. Being Jewish, it's likely they sang some of the Psalms of David when he was on the run from Saul or Absalom, or or maybe, you know, some of the songs when they're in the Babylonian captivity. And I can't imagine as you're a prisoner there, you liked it at first. Oh, here they go. That'll quit after a couple hours and they can't feel their legs anymore. But it mentions here that the other prisoners heard them. The phrase there means they listened to them. It's actually a word that's an artesian word. It refers to when you would go listen to an orchestra or you'd go listen to a, a musical playing and it produced joy in you. Here are all these prisoners and they're listening to Paul and Silas worship God and it brings joy to their hearts. Could you imagine them being alone there in the darkness as well? All they had, not like Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are saying, man, we're suffering for Jesus. But all these guys are there because their own sin put them there. You know, as they're thinking of their pain, they're thinking, this is my dumbness put me here. My bad decision-making put me here. And then you hear songs of redemption and forgiveness. I've always wondered, I thought, why didn't they leave? When the earthquake comes, we're gonna see in a moment, the earthquake comes and it sets them free. Why don't they run? 
I wonder if maybe they wanted to hear more about that redemption. (laughs) I don't want to get out of here just yet because I'm probably going to land back in here someday. I'd kind of like to get really free. People need Jesus even though they won't realize it at first. Verse 26, and suddenly, right after midnight, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaking. I heard one commentator say that God was really enjoying the worship and started tapping his foot. You know, you can touch the heart of God. Do you know that? You can touch the heart of God. That blows me away. That you and I can actually do something that would move him. I think sometimes as we try to understand God and all of his power, all of his might, I think that sometimes we think, well, God doesn't need me, of course. So why would anything I do move him in any way? And yet the Bible says that we can bring him pleasure, that we can bring him joy. You ever heard that phrase, the joy of the Lord is our strength? When we persevere through something, It touches his heart. When we stand for him in a difficult situation, it touches his heart. So where do you see that? You remember Stephen when he was stoned to death? And what do we see Jesus doing? I see the son of man standing in the right hand of the father. Everything I read in the scripture says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father. But there he's standing to welcome him in. I believe it touched his heart that Stephen would be willing to bear the stones to stand for him, that it touched his heart. And if no one else would stand, Jesus would stand with him. You and I, when we're going through these difficulties and we're still trying to serve him, we're still trying to worship him. That's what worship is, it's service. That's why it's called a sacrifice of praise sometimes. Sacrifices are not easy. Something dies in a sacrifice, right? Something dies in in a sacrifice, And a sacrifice of praise is when we are coming to the Lord, we say, Lord, here I am. Lord, I I, I don't want to necessarily go through with this. There's this marriage that's difficult or my kids are just driving me crazy or or this job. I just don't know if I can go back another day. They say, but Lord, I love you. And I know that's what you've called me to do. And and so that part of me that doesn't want to do it anymore, I lay it right on the altar and I just put it to death right now. Fill me with your spirit. Bring me back to life that, I can go into those situations and live for you and bring you pleasure. Man, I think when we do that, that the Lord is just smiling from ear to ear. And as he's there on that throne and he's thinking, that's my boy, that's my girl. Maybe you're going through pain right now. Maybe it feels like God is far away. You feel like you're in a dark place. There's no light. I want to encourage you. And you know, we're going to sing to him right now. And this is a great time to, to take that and lay it on the altar, to, to let that frustration, you don't want to go the way of the Lord. You kind of want to just take it into your own hands and, and fix it. Just let all, let all that down on the altar of God's love. Let him do surgery on you. Worship him in the midst of it. Surrender your all. Sing praise to him. You may never know whose foundations the Lord is trying to rock by allowing you to go through this trial. I mean, it's a bit of a giveaway if you haven't read ahead, but the Philippian jailer is gonna come to Christ through this, through their suffering. Everyone in the story of Job, Job included, thought they understood why Job was suffering. But the truth is this, and it's from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. 
And it says, wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. There is a suffering according to the will of God. There is. And if you're there right now, I want to encourage you to just offer up your life to him. Worship him. Amen. Let's sing. God is with us in the good times when things are going well. And he's also still with us when it looks like there's no hope and things can't get much worse. He never promised to keep us from suffering, but he promises to always be there beside us and go through it with us. No matter what circumstances you find yourself in today, remember that Jesus is always there right beside you. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Strong.